Welcome to Utopias Now. What is sustainability? It's a term that is used more and more so in the current day and age. It's a concept that has been gradually become more commonplace in our collective consciousness in the past few decades. Whether that concerns climate action or whether that concerns excessive consumerism or even things like unsustainable business practices. And being of the new generation, being a Gen Z, being a millennial, um, a question I often wonder is how do we actually enact change on a meaningful level, not just a superficial level? And how do we do that, especially as a society as well, especially in the in the light of loss of biodiversity, in the light of a loss of community and, and life in general? And one such way of doing this is through something called social engagement. Today, I had the pleasure of talking with Rob Karpati, and Rob is a transformational leader and is the vice president of O-Trade, an organization that's dedicated to bringing social engagement to the mining industry. And Rob has worked cross-culturally and cross-regionally as well in bringing together diverse perspectives and diverse stakeholders towards a common perspective. And that common perspective being, how do we raise overall value? How do we create positive sum games? And in the conversation, Rob and I discussed how the practice of social engagement, specifically within the mining industry and within other industries as well, how that can lead to companies creating more sustainable practices and leading to a more sustainable industry in general. And then we also discussed various other topics like the mining industry as a whole, how if it can actually transition into being sustainable, and then as well as other important topics like cognitive diversity, as well as um, diversity and inclusion within organizations. And we touch upon a number of other things as well. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and this conversation. I know I did. It was very interesting to connect with someone from across the pond. And uh, we hope you enjoy. Um, the first thing, Rob, is we like to do. We like to play games and do experiments on the podcast. And this get, play games is very broad, so it can mean many things. The first sort of game or like experience I'd like to to sort of dive into is um, Shashul and I have been very interested in storytelling recently. We have sort of seen how storytelling can be a, a vehicle of conveying truth or conveying meaning. And we've seen how if there is not a narrative for something, people don't tend to recognize that as a path forward. So I guess an example is if there is no, uh, if there is no sort of uh, a narrative around certain management styles, maybe those man- management styles are not enacted in the real world. Um, I wanted to ask you, um, do you have any stories um, regarding um, o trade or regarding your personal background that come to mind immediately and it can be any story but a story that you have that just immediately comes to mind to you i'd be quite curious sure so so thanks for the conversation and uh hi everyone i'm the vice president at uh o trade and i've been with o trade for about a year and a half we're we're a socioeconomic company focused on uh, social engagement in the mining industry, bringing together mining companies and communities. So the story, Xavier, uh, that I'll talk about is when I first heard about our trade and uh, met Monica Espino, the uh, founder. So, so, so O-Trade is a small boutique focused on figuring out how to solve the on-the-ground puzzle. 
And um, the grand puzzle being the relationship puzzle. How does the community and the company both win towards common cause? And we happen to live in the same condominium. And I actually met her in a condominium uh, meeting. And she started describing world trade. And I fell off my chair because to me, it was one of those. This just makes so much sense as, as a concept. Because the things that made sense about it, she described the model where, number one, we're talking to uh, companies, not talking at companies. So using their self-interest to engage them on the ground. And their self-interest being their economic self-interest, because you can't force anyone to do something, but you can talk to them and explain why doing the right thing is also the smart thing. Along with that, it's triggering sustainable development with the community that's uh, associated with the mining region. And obviously that touches my heart and it's a cause that matters to me. So after we had about a half hour, 45 minute conversation in the middle of a condominium uh, design team meeting of all things, um, I, I was all of a sudden talking to her and asking, I want a piece of this. I'd like to join. So, so it's funny where you go and how you get there, because you never know what door you open just by going somewhere and finding something that you believe in and just makes sense for you. Absolutely fascinating. So I, I love that quote at the end as well, where you said it's funny where you go and how you get there. And I think generally speaking, um, as someone that's quite young, uh, and I think this is generally the case with most people, is that you we often think and project into the future and war and we have all these worries about, you know, how am I going to get this done? How is this going to happen? How are these pieces going to fall together? And yet seemingly somehow a lot of the times things just fall into place and things happen. And it's usually, or in my case, at least things happen and they happen unexpected in the unexpected way, or at least in a way that deviates for the way you think they'll happen. But you mentioned how um, O-Trade is involved with mining and um, also in sustainability. And I'd be really curious to know, um, I think for a lot of people, they would see those two sort of ideas as counterintuitive if we were going to look in the sense of like oil and um, sustainable um, products. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, discussion, especially in Australia about, you know, that we have to shift away from fossil fuels and or we have to shift to more sustainable um, resources. And um, there's that sort of narrative in the media, at least in Australia. I'm not too sure if that's the same case in Canada. But I'd like to see in terms of like what is the broader picture in terms of what is going on with the mining industry at the moment? How does sustainability play into that? And is there a sort of a, a tension between the two? I'd like to hear what your thoughts are on that. Absolutely. So, so sustainability is huge and it's essential in the world of mining because at the end of the day, we're all talking about clean energy transitions where we want to move from um, oil and gas to wind power, solar power, some other power. And what do you need for that? You need minerals, you need cobalt, you need lithium, you need copper. So you got to mine that stuff. And where, where, where are those materials located? Well, a lot of the time they're pretty remote. They're, they're faraway spots that are relatively underdeveloped. There's a lot of minerals in the Congo, for example, in Nigeria, for example, in, in, in Russia, China. And so these, these are places where 
governance isn't necessarily as strong as this in the Canada and Australia. These are places where um, sometimes there's conflict on the ground and mining can make a difference in one of two directions. It's either talking or taking, where talking is sustainable development. It's sitting down with the community, it's conflict resolution and management, it's social engagement, which can trigger sustainable development. That's the good. When it's not done that way, it's taking and it's conflict on a platter. So the notion of how do you drive conflict management, how do you drive social engagement in the world of mining is pretty fundamental. Makes sense to the mining companies because guess what? They're going to have less risks. They're going to have more opportunities in collaboration because who knows the reality on the ground better than the folks who live on the ground. Makes sense to the community because their needs and concerns are being addressed. And it makes sense to downstream customers because they have stability of supply chain. If you sit there and you're buying some mineral from a company that's in a conflict situation, how do you know that mineral is going to be available tomorrow on the minus and shut down? You, you probably don't. And if you're an investor, do you, do you like that notion, that kind of risk that's unwelcome? Of course not. So you're going to look to conflict resolution. You're going to look to social engagement that triggers development because at the end of the day, you've got a better risk profile. You make more money, let's be real. And, and, and by making more money, you're actually doing the right thing, which is engaging communities respectfully, building social license, which means you're building trust in a relationship that you can jointly succeed under. So, I mean, that's absolutely fascinating. And you use the word social engagement. Um, for someone that is the average layman or laywoman, I'm sure they may be, uh, they may not have a full grasp on what that may mean in the context of mining or in the context of um, sustainability. Could you maybe give us a quick run through of what that means and how that looks like in that context? Sure. It, it starts with listening. It, it's all about trying to understand the community that you're uh, working with. So engaging the community and not talking at them, but listening to them to understand their wants, their needs, their concerns. And based on those wants, needs and concerns, figuring out the puzzle around engagement. Where's the win-win that makes sense for both the community that addresses their concerns and needs and wants and addresses the company concerns, needs and wants. So everyone ends up winning. In corporate, we use the word change management a lot. And change management is all about how do you bring people on board? How do you communicate, negotiate, get everyone on the same page? Social engagement is in a way the same thing because it's all about finding that sweet spot where everyone wins and collaborating towards common cause. So... With that in mind, it sounds like it sounds like uh, social engagement is all, social engagement is almost like the positive sum game. If we were going to reference the Alex Edmonds podcast, is trying to find that where everyone can win that, that sweet spot, as you said. Someone who's a skeptic and maybe quite someone that's quite young and looking forward and uh, quite forward thinking, I think that there may be a few challenges to idea of. Is it possible for there to be any reconciliation or any mediation between communities and uh, huge corporations? Um, that's something that comes to mind was a case study I read a few years ago about a mining company somewhere in in, uh, in the African subcontinent where you know there was a huge oil spillage and it devastated the village and there was huge consequences. 
and for that for those communities and despite the public outcry um despite the public outcry those communities weren't given the sufficient help they needed so the, obviously that is one case and perhaps that is an extreme but i'm quite curious to see is it possible to have that mediation on a sustainable level is how how can we reconcile these sort of um, these stories that we hear about um, or maybe bad PR about certain instances in the mining industry between communities? Is it possible to have a positive sum game in that context? It's, it's not just possible. It's essential because <laughs> at the end of the day, if it were easy, everyone would be doing it and we'd all be getting along in some kind of nirvana. But at the end of the day, there's hard work that starts with listening and, and, and leads to a respecting and ends up in trust. And that hard work's a long-term construct and it requires real earnestness, real listening, real willingness to compromise and come to the table. Does it work well every time? Obviously not. Does it work well a lot of the time? Well, it can when it's done right. And part of the point around, right, I'm a finance guy by trade, and I think ROI, return on investment, I think SROI, social return on investment. So how does work translate to money for a community or for a company? And at the end of the day, if you do it right, you're building a value proposition that increases social return and increases internal return as well which is why it's possible to uh, do it right. It starts with the will to go there, the, 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 the long-term thinking to think out of the box a little bit and look for solutions that just make sense to everyone instead of the easy way and trying to take something and ending up with conflict on your hands that, guess what, you're going to be paid for it. Yeah, for sure. And I think, um, I think it's a really interesting point that you make about um, – listening and making sure you're actually engaging with what people are saying and not just speaking at them, but speaking to them and having that proper dialogue, that understanding of ideas, understanding of where someone's coming from to have anything change, have effective change management. So with that in mind, um, as someone that, like I said, is studying finance and you said you're studying finance, there are a lot of these ideas that people may think conflict with maybe social good for example like if there is a shareholder that is trying to raise their share price won't that mean they do certain things at the expense in order to raise their share price i'm sure that is it maybe a sentiment of non-finance background or people that come from non-finance background um i was quite curious to know with with that sort of sentiment in mind do you think that coming from a finance background is it can set you an inflammatory territory when it comes to engaging with socially responsible um, activities or engagement. So at the end of the day, finance people know how to write business cases and how to model value. And when we're talking about social engagement, you know, listening on the ground is one starting point because listening followed by followed by talking and talking meaning discussing. But part but part of that, but the flip side of that work is understanding what does the value proposition look like? What does the business case look like? So what's the value? What what's going to happen if you engage a community a certain way? Well, Trust might mean collaboration. Trust might mean less legal risk or less PR risk or less shutdown risk, which is real expensive. So, so trying to marry up 
what is the hardcore economics look like? So me as a finance guy understanding that with someone on the ground who understands what the true customer relation, the true community relationship looks like, that, that's where magic happens because it's bringing together both sides of the coin towards common value. And when, and when you talk to Alex, for example, he gets that notion because it's all about the win-win that's in business case economics that uh, drives you to find that sweet spot. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, as a finance student, obviously, I would, I would agree with that. And I, I think it's interesting because there's also an important there's an important idea that you mentioned earlier about when you're engaging with communities or you're engaging with um outside point of views you're being challenged on the way you think and what your values are may conflict with others but at the end of the day they add to the substance of what is being said and they add to and they add to the overall understanding and comprehension of what a problem is um something that's related to mining and sort of related to finance which i think maybe the average person would be interested to know is that um, in terms of the transition from away from non-sustainable resources to maybe more sustainable resources in the context of the mining industry, how possible is that? Because, I mean, as someone that doesn't really know much about the mining industry, um, I, I personally am not too sure if it's possible to shift completely away from non, non-sustainable to sustainable resources. Is that an actual possibility for larger companies? And if so, how does that actually work? So, so, so look, at the end of the day, clean tech means that you're mining the materials that you need to make the clean tech. You're mining a whole lot of lithium. You're mining a whole lot of cobalt. And then, then, then you're making windmills instead of relying on oil and gas. So is that possible? Well, why not? But what do you need to get there? Well, number one, you need a whole lot of planning to get there because you better be thinking about the skills that you need. And it's not just the skills to take lithium out of the ground. It's the skills to mean it's social engagement in far off locations. You better, you, you, you better be thinking about the root causes of climate change as well. Because why, why are we talking about clean energy transitions? Well, Climate change, okay, we've we've dumped a lot of oil and gas and carbon into the atmosphere, but but the poverty as much as anything is a root cause of climate change. Because if you're in poverty, if you live in some uh, some situation where you're only thinking about today and you have to think about survival today, are you gonna think about climate tomorrow? Well, no, obviously not. You gotta put food on your table. So the idea of figuring out how to engage socially, the idea of how to uh, engage people and trigger sustainable development to build the space that they can actually think about climate transitions and collaborate in climate transitions, all, all, all that is pretty much prerequisite critical work. And, and the last part is it's not undone. It's not going to happen in 2021. It's not going to happen in 2022. It's going to take years. And years means long-term thinking. So, so you think about it again as a finance person, and what's the reality? Value optimization means long-term value optimization. So you got to think about long-term when you dial in the work and you dial in the economics of the work. 
because if the earth's baking and Florida ends up underwater, don't know if that'll happen, but let's, as an example, then that doesn't sound like value optimization to me. But on, but on the other hand, if you're building a different paradigm where you're actually lifting folks up and collectively working around climate so that you move to a different reality tomorrow, then that sounds like a better economic reality for the long term as well. So you got to keep all those things in mind and then uh, dr- drive the process with earnestness and, and, and collaboration because it's also not one company. It's also not one government. It's not one stakeholder group. We're all in it together. I absolutely agree. And I think the average person would definitely do as well. And something that you touched upon is this idea of long-term thinking, which I think is sorely needed in times when addressing things like climate change, when addressing things like the geopolitical climate, when discussing all these sort of really uh, macro issues. Um, And this also relates to an idea and an instance that happened in Australia that I wanted to get your thoughts on and relate it to the idea of diversity. Cause I know diversity is something that is of particular um, that you're particularly passionate about. So just to go on a bit of a, st- a quick storytelling, um, there was a, I'm sure you're aware of the company Rio Tinto, one of the largest um, mining energy companies in the world. Um, something that's quite similar between Australia and Canada is that we have an indigenous population um, and in Australia, um, we the indigenous populations, they have had traces to the land that are over 60,000 years old, or at least something that's close to that, which is, and I think if I'm not correct, if I'm not wrong, it is one of the uh, oldest living populations in the world or recorded, um, at least recorded living populations in the world. Unfortunately, I think it was in 2019 or 2020, there was an instance where um, there was an instance where um, one of these uh, Rio Tinto went ahead and, and um, blew up a cave, which had traces of paintings from um, from indigenous um, indigenous paintings that were had a I think carbon dating said it was around fifty thousand years old, which was obviously a very big mistake. And the there was a there was, you know there was a public outcry about it, and uh, eventually what ended up happening was I think the CEO the CEO got sacked. Um, and I think a few board members were their heads rolled as well. And people in that instance were thinking, well, this requires a huge change. It requires, you know, a complete overhaul of the way that the company thinks, because if this decision was allowed, presumably there needs to be some fresh ideas to sort of embolden the company and to make sure that this does not happen again. And lo and behold, what ended up happening was there was, you know, someone that was from the corporate office in London who uh, I think the from our, what I read in the media was someone that was quite similar to the previous, um, the previous executive. And it seemed like nothing much had changed, or at least that's the way that the media portrayed it. This t- touches on a really interesting idea, which is cognitive diversity. It's something I'm really passionate about. Um, I, a really good book recommendation I'd like to give to you, Robin, to our listeners is a book called A Rebel Ideas. And it's a, basically a, a, case, a case for cognitive diversity, which is this idea of it is not enough to, to be different, but you have to think different and you have to take into account different perspectives because that allows you to see the whole problem space. It allows you to really engage with things differently. And 
it seems like in this situation that there was a there was a need for that. There was a need for different ideas, different thinking, different mannerisms, different phrases that you use in the boardroom. There was a, a whole need for all these sort of things. Do you think that in the case of the general industry that you've been involved in, that there is a lack of cognitive diversity or diversity in general? And I'd love to hear more of your experience. So, so there's a few different things you mentioned, and uh, I, I can uh, talk about uh, all of them a little bit. I mean, you know, there, there, there have been sad, uh, there's been some sad history in both of our countries when it came to uh, the way we've treated indigenous populations, sad and tragic histories. And the, the Rio Tinto incident was a, it's a very sad, tragic story at the end of the day. And it probably as much as anything speaks to governance and uh, groupthink in the company. And governance, it's very easy to focus on details and miss the big picture if you're in a big company of any kind. Nothing unique to Rio there, but, but in all companies. And Rio paid a price for it. And I'm sure putting in the processes to uh, avoid the kind of thing ever happening again. Having said that more broadly, the notion of cognitive diversity a hundred percent agree with you. Diversity in all forms adds huge value. And we get stuck on superficial differences at the end of the day, whether it's gender, whether it's sexual orientation, race, religion, creed, whatever these things mean. And we forget folks think differently. And my neighbor might think differently. My neighbor four houses down might think differently as well. And the notion of bringing together folks with different modes of thought and having conversations with them is all about creativity and resilience. Because guess what? If you and I think slightly differently, your idea and my idea might come together cognitively to a whole new idea. Neither one of us would have by ourselves. And that's really cool because that's a diversity writ large and creativity writ large. So, so, so you can't have enough of it at the end of the day. And is it, is, is it evolving and are different companies and industries at different places around it? Well, yeah, we, we, we know that's right. We know in some countries and in some industries, diversity doesn't exist at all. In others, it's a quota. And you got to have the same pr- proportion of uh, women and men or, 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 or this group and that group. And that's different, though, than inclusion, because have, having the same proportion of something in a room, but ignoring that proportion doesn't mean a whole lot because real diversity comes with real inclusion. And um, because that's where conversation happens. It's listening to your ideas. It's listening and engaging on your thoughts so that my thoughts and your thoughts and the five other people in the room with us with their thoughts come together to a whole new thought. So where's mining around that? Well, it's a continuum like the rest of the world. Some companies are obviously at a different place than other companies, but diversity and inclusion when put together it's real value because what's creativity? It's value at the end of the day, other than being just the obvious right thing to do. So the companies that get ahead of the curve end up uh, enjoying more, more benefits, more value because of that, which is part of the reason why once once there's a path towards increasing DNI, it's an inevitable path that'll keep going. I love all of that. And just to circle back to what you were saying, I mean, you first started off by saying 
you know, governance and group thinkers can happen in even in the biggest organizations, which although I don't have a vast amount of corporate experience, I've experienced in very small instances and I can definitely see how that may lead to people missing the bigger picture. But you touched upon something and you ran uh, with the idea of cognitive diversity and you added in inclusion. And I know, um, generally speaking, there's been certain figures in the public, in the public eye, at least on social media, that have sort of um, taken these words and um, turned them into things that maybe not exactly was the initial intention in terms of what that, the ideas of diversity and inclusion mean. And I think, I think it's quite clear in terms of the value that they bring. But for someone that may not understand completely what the difference is, could you maybe identify what the difference is between diversity and inclusion and then maybe what is the importance for inclusion specifically um, I think it may be obvious for some others but maybe for for the sake of you know being as comprehensive and as possible I think it'd be it'd be interesting to, to find out more sure so so diversity are having diverse folks in the room regardless of uh, gender orientation race religion creed and so on Inclusion is listening to them and talking to them and going back and forth. Because having someone in the room isn't the same as respecting and valuing their opinion and, and, and listening and engaging their opinion. So the two have got to go together because someone's got to be in the room, but someone's got to be engaged for the true value to be added at the end of the day. Fantastic. And I, and I see the link now all the way back to the first com the first point we talked about, about how you mentioned with in terms of social engagement, it's not about speaking to them, but speaking, uh, speaking at them, but speaking to them. And similarly, it sounds like uh, social engagement is built upon this principle of inclusion, of making sure that you're including the right minds, or not the right minds, but including as many minds as possible and as many different issues as possible. Is that is that as clear cut as I'm seeing it? Yeah, absolutely. At, 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 at the end of the day, it's listening, which means respecting, which means including. Right. And if you're if you're a community in some relatively distant, relatively undeveloped part of the world, are you necessarily equipped to uh, commence a relationship with some huge company with the head office in Sydney or Toronto? Well, maybe, maybe not. But 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 when we're talking about social engagement, it's talking to folks as equals, and, and it's being inclusive around their point of view, mm -hmm. and the notion of, well, free engagement, consent in the, in the long-term answer, and negotiating a common value. Mm, absolutely. And um, on that note of common value and finding value, um, and the fact that we both come from finance backgrounds, I'd love to dive into this idea of, um, of uh, SRI or socially responsible investments. And I, I don't know, I don't know how much you've looked into them, but I would love to talk to you about what that means to be a socially responsible investment from a philosophical point of view. So as in street philosopher fashion, I think it's quite interesting to see this rise in, uh, to see this rise in people investing in things because they're socially responsible and to take a more philosophical point of view from this. It seems that people 
in a broader sense, and this is not all people, this is some people, may take a more utilitarian point of view and and uh, choosing to invest in socially responsible things, not necessarily because they're socially responsible, but because they can see everyone latching onto the future value that that may hold. Whereas there may be some other people, for example, that want to do socially responsible things or invest in socially responsible investment products because they treat that, those things as intrinsically the right thing to do. And so I'd like to see from your point of view, um, this idea between people choosing to do things, maybe not because it is the right thing, but because it is the thing that will have the best return versus things that treating things as if they are the right thing to do. Have you seen that in your, in your work life? Have you seen that in finance in general? And what are your thoughts on that? Oh, yeah. Like at the, at the end of the day, there's all sorts of different kinds of investors out there. There are some exclusionary investors. I'm not going to invest in, I don't know, arms manufacturers or cigarette companies because they do harm. There, there, There's investors that want to do it active good and it's behavioral good so esg metrics and are you are you engaging environmentally in a positive way are you engaging socially in a positive way and what does that look like but that's behavioral and then you've got investors that are impact investors show me the bottom line impact that you've made how have you helped the community and how and what difference have you done through that and they're they're all flavors of the same thing because it's folks trying to figure out what does this thing called sustainable investing mean part of the challenge is there isn't a single bible around uh what is what does impact reporting look like what does sustainability reporting look like so we, we, we all know that there's all sorts of reporting schemes out there whether it's gri sasb so on and some of them are qualitative. They're hard to understand what's the real bottom line impact of them. But one thing that's gradually evolving is the notion of impact-weighted accounts, being able to understand the true normative, normatively evaluated impact of what value are you adding through your environmental touch, through your social touch, and how does that commingle with the books of your company? Because the true value of your company isn't just the money you make. It's the value that you generate, whether it's for the community or whether it's for the environment somehow. And, 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 and as that happens, it's going to get naturally at least a little bit easier to come towards a quantitative view of the world on how does impact dial into sustainability investing. We're, we're, we're not there today. It's something that's coming and it's something that's going to take a while to get to. Absolutely. And uh, Alex Edmonds touches on this point in his book, Grow the Pie, and he talks about how in terms of sustainability reporting, he shows the evidence in his book quite comprehensively about what the returns are on socially responsible um, investment products versus the general um, index and for maybe uh, and and basically contrasts these two evidence and shows quite honestly, you know, these are the returns for these sort of investments. These are the returns for that investments. And even though there is a difference between what the returns are, I think people can generally, uh, uh, and I think this is more progressively the case, is that people are increasingly choosing these sort of more socially responsive products, which I think is absolutely fantastic. But often what happens maybe in larger companies is that it becomes a box ticking 
exercise. So for example, the creator of, I think the ESG framework, um, John Elkington, I think is his name. He wrote a book in the nineties, basically outlining the framework. And yet I think a few years ago, I think even 2019, he came out and said, I mean, this was really good in the nineties, but now it's really outdated. This is, this is something that really needs to change. Um, with that in mind, uh, I think there's all these sort of metrics that are starting to come out and starting to evolve, that people are recognizing that there is more to, to life, there is more to value than economic value or financial value. There's things like well-being index where you know New Zealand, for example, are starting to measure uh, GDP in terms of well-being or something along those lines. If you look at, uh, if you look in terms of the political realm, we can see that people are taking into account the future and the future orientation. For example, in, I think in, in the Scotland parliament or the, or a parliament in um, Norway, I forget, the, I forget where exactly they have come up with a political officer that takes into account the future generations that doesn't only account for the now, but accounts for the future to safeguard against um, maybe um, lobbying groups that are interested in, in doing things for today. So there are all these sort of things that are happening that are inching us towards progress. And I'd like to know from your point of view, um, in terms of companies, uh, in terms of um, your experience, do you see a growing need for these metrics in terms of uh, metrics that take into account more than more than just pure economic value. Do you think that's that's uh, increasingly a possibility, or do you think things will more or less stay the same? So, uh, picking a box at zero value, it, 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 it's a temptation for some companies because they don't necessarily get it at zero value. So, so financial is one thing; beyond financial is another thing. But financially, I'll start there. The notion of measuring return on investment or measuring social return is something finance people know how to do. We, we know how to build business cases. That's what we were taught in school. That's what we did through our career. So modeling the value generated through social engagement or through environmental touch can go a long way towards highlighting what does it really mean? What's the, what, what, what's the real impact on a community? And what's the real impact on a company? When you're talking community value, you know, is it explicit down to the last penny? Well, of course not. It's, it's normative and statistical, me, 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 meaning that it's logical assumptions driving towards a, uh, to, towards a quantitative supportable answer. So, so that's something we can do. And by doing that, it creates a common language that uh, companies anyway can get their heads around around what what am I bringing through this and how do I talk about this and how do I think about trade-offs and choices around this. You go the next step around things like a, a, a national happiness index, and it's going to be interesting to see where it evolves. Because yeah, there's a, there's different experiments or different approaches being talked about in different parts of the world. And so some of them are really good thoughts, but at the end of the day, as much as anything, they're, they're expressions of dissatisfaction with the short-term focus in our economic systems today. So it'll be interesting to see 
if we have a stronger view around impact weighted accounts, if we have a stronger view around measuring social return, and as Ronnie Cohen would say, we combine doing good and doing well, that 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 then is that going to address a lot of that dissatisfaction in a way that shifts the conversation? Don't know. Time will tell. That's fantastic. And something, a phrase you mentioned there, which I really love, which I think encapsulate what we've just been talking about is that these metrics or these sort of measures are addressing a dissatisfaction, a dissatisfaction, something that is not going right or something that we are yearning for, something, something more. And this ties into something that I'm really passionate about and I hope to pursue as I as I um you know as I grow older, which is corporate ethics, and so I think for the average person, that's that corporate ethics seems in to some people, to some skeptics as well as to some re- reasonably minded people, as counterintuitive. How can a company be ethical? And I think case studies like Enron or the global financial crisis, there there you know Theranos. There's a number of companies that have committed. You know, there's malfeasance beyond our wildest dreams. There have been so many things that have gone wrong. But on the other hand, there have been so many non-for-profits, so many businesses, for-profit businesses as well that have contributed to change, that have contributed to pursuing purpose. And there seems to be this sort of weird dissonance between the two because on one hand, you can see how the power of business and the power of um, solving problems. And then at the same time, you can see the devastating effects, such as like the Rio Tinto example I used earlier. So with that in mind, I'd be interested to hear what your thoughts are on the idea of corporate ethics and from your experience, what that looks like. And if you think it's possible for there to be uh, utopia or uh, even uh, some sort of world or even if it's here now where companies we can can be trusted so ha- having a really strong what i'll call a bulletproof focus on ethics is essential at the end of the day and you think about rio tinto well there's a consequence to what happened there and then had a different consequence but companies are different than people you know, you can talk about uh, you can talk about Enron, or you can talk about Bernie Madoff as an individual, and, and and both of them were ethically challenged, and vice versa. You can talk about B Corp companies that do real good, and you can talk about people that do real good as well. So, so the question becomes: What does ethics really mean, and how do uh, companies think about them and dial them into their uh, culture and into their processes? So, one one. One challenge we've had in the last several decades, ever since Milton Friedman, really, is the notion of externalities. Well, Milton Friedman, by saying shareholders have primacy, was interpreted as saying nothing outside of the four walls matters. So, so social doesn't matter, environmental doesn't matter. And we know that's wrong. And we increasingly know that's wrong today. Because at the end of the day, is the environment or are people on the ground in a community infinite resources without value? Of course not. Are, are, do they create risks for companies if they're not uh, dealt with? Of course. Do they bring opportunities to company if they're engaged positively? Of course. So the realization of that's one thing. Another thing's time horizons. 
because it's really easy and you see a lot of companies and uh, equity markets focus on uh, the short term. And, and, and you see executive pay, so, so executive compensation being geared to short-term earnings and share performance. And guess what? We all do what we get paid for. But, it, but, but at the end of the day, value optimization is, it, it, it is long-term at the end of the day as a construct. So, so, so getting past that, being very clear about dialing in long-term executive compensation, long-term strategic focus is, is, is essential for behavior that brings long-term value, including ethical value. Because ethics is about governance in, on a certain level. It's about behaving consistently with uh, your values and beliefs, your ethics. And so, so what's governance all about? Well, it's corporate culture, obviously, but it's all the decision-making processes that allow you to stay consistent with your ethics. And when you think about short-termism versus true long-term and true stakeholder inclusiveness, if you dial those values and beliefs into your governance and into your decision-making processes, then there's tons of examples and tons of reasons to believe that, 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 that companies can behave very ethically and very collaboratively, recognizing there's some Enron stories out there. Absolutely. And to touch on the book of uh, Roman Krasnick, who I often cite, he, he has a really good book called The Good Ancestor. And he brings in this notion of uh, the the title of the book is a play on this uh, the adage of uh, the good the good Samaritan how the good you know there's this idea of being the good person the golden rule treat others as you do, do others as you do unto others or whatever the, the adage is <laughs> and um, and he brings this idea of being instead of being the good Samaritan we must be the good ancestor because that that is a very stark um, change and a very stark reorient, reorientation between to the future by saying being the good ancestor we are saying not only do i want to be the good person now but for the next generations forward the next few generations for my great grandkids for example and um this idea of time horizons is really important he also talks about this and how like you mentioned if we don't then we can be driven by the wrong incentives but one thing i'm concerned of as a as a finance and ethics sort of student is in Australia, at least, and I'll use an Australian case study. And by all means, if I know these are difficult questions, so I'm not expecting any answers. But uh, there was an, there's been a number of instances where, for example, um, the bigger the biggest banks in Australia. So there's like a there's a there's around four big banks. They operate they they operate and take up. up about I think most of the market share and there was a recently a um, what we call in Australia Royal Commission which is when I don't know if it's similar in Canada um, but it's basically when the government does an inquiry into something and then they put in a lot of money and there's a huge investigation and then there's some sort of report that comes out of it with some recommendations and uh, there was a lot of damning things that came out of the Royal Commission that the big banks did and um, unfortunately, I think a lot of things did not go addressed. Um, obviously, in legal sense, they did because there was a report and all these things. But I mean, immediately after the commission ended, the the share prices of all these big banks skyrocketed, which is not a good thing. It's not something you want to add the day after recommendations on 
on based all on, on ethical claims and uh, claims of you know anti money laundering and and um, all sorts of claims. So in this situation, I think. I think if we wanted to, to be optimistic, there's a number of things we could say. We could say, well, look, like we have to treat companies not as companies but as people and we have to make sure that the culture in the company is right and ethically sound. We have to make sure that the people that are hired are ethically principled and they're, and they're, as, and they're sticking to their word and they're as earnest as possible and abiding by their code of conduct. Yet on the other hand, you could say there's like this sort of pessimistic side that says, yeah, but... Uh, all is it is it all doomed to sort of you know come crumbling down there's you know and you know the case studies have shown x y and z how do we inculcate this sense of principled right righteousness or principled justice or ethics into 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 people because as someone that's really passionate about these things i'll tell people you know like uh, talk about all these like ethical philosophies and talk about the right thing and the wrong thing and talk about all these, all these really, uh, really meaty issues that are really important, but it's one thing to discuss and to agree. And it's another thing to confront an actual dilemma and choosing the right thing to do. Do, do you, do you have any thoughts on how we can, inculcate that into an organization because that's a that's a quandary i'm struggling to <laughs> to address I, I mean there's so many layers of change and change is never straight line in the first place but 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 awareness and tipping points around awareness tend to be the triggers of change so the notion of you can do good and and, and, and do well at the same time it's an important notion and awareness around that's gradually increasing and actually quite rapidly increasing because covid highlighted it the last 18 months we've seen all the gaps in social support structures out there. We've seen how it's essential to engage stakeholders and companies that have historically done a better job of that reopened faster and got on their feet faster and did better. And so, so, so the two go together. So, so, so one part of this is awareness and education that's pretty fundamentally essential. Another part's obviously regulatory because you've got certain things People follow their self-interest. It's, it's human nature. Why would companies be any different than that? They follow their self-interest as well. So things like transparency around uh, lobbying work and fulsome reporting around corporate lobbying, what's happening in the smoky room, so it's not just a smoky room, makes a real difference. Because all of a sudden, if a company says something different inside a smoky room compared to their public statement, and they both go public, well... That presents a new challenge, just like it would for any given person. If I say different things on the same topic to two different people and they get together, they're going to ask me what gives. And so there's a regulatory dimension to this. There's an awareness dimension to this, which comes with education. And there's a corporate governance dimension to this around best practice governance. Because, again, self-interest is one thing. And companies are composed of individuals who individually have their self-interest and collectively have their self-interest. So, 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 so along with awareness on what doing well and doing good looks like, ROI and SROI, in other words, awareness on, uh, on governance best practices and the risks around governance best practices falling down, 
is really important to have because if you don't have that, then you risk some uh, interesting behavior by mistake or on purpose, which leads to outcomes that aren't the outcomes you'd necessarily hope for. Yeah, I I I I agree with all those things, and I think it's really important that you mentioned the awareness part because. There's, there's a quote I really like, and it's used in uh, psychotherapy circles, but it's this idea of awareness precedes control. And without being aware of something, it's hard to actually have any understanding of how you can fix a problem because you don't know it's there and you can't control it. So I absolutely love that. And I think throughout this conversation, I've gotten a really strong sense of optimism from you. But I want to, I don't know if that's just me misreading into it, and I would love to know what your general sentiment is about the future of about business or about the world. Is it a pessimistic one? Is it an optimistic one? Is it a neutral one? I'd love to see what your, what your view is in terms of how things will be going. So change is never straight line. Sometimes things get better. Sometimes things uh, don't go in the other direction, but over the long run, I, I, I'm actually optimistic because uh, 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 awareness breeds understanding, understanding breeds uh, action. And that's a multi-year, multi-decade thing. The challenge is always there's different stakeholders who want to pull you in different directions for different reasons. But that's why change is in a straight line. But it eventually, but it eventually gets there. So fundamentally, I'm I'm optimistic. And what, what, why would I be here doing what I'm trying to do? Why would I be in this conversation either if if, if I wouldn't be? Because because at the end of the day, you have to be optimistic to be able to. Uh, focus and strive to uh, make a difference towards uh, impact. I love that as well. And I think that brings us to something. I think that brings us to one of our final questions, which we ask all of our guests. And it's, uh, I love it because you can take it anywhere. You can interpret it any way you want. You can take it anywhere you want. And it is, what does your utopia look like? And this could be as optimistic, as pessimistic as possible. It could be as creative as you want. It can be as realistic and to the point as possible. I'd love to know what your utopia would look like. So, so not, not sure that's the easiest question off the top of my head. Um, I, I suppose John Lennon's mansion, if you want the honest answer. But um, what, what I'll say more more realistically and more, more near-term wise is in, increased focus on stakeholder collaboration, increased focus on, uh, on engagement based on evolving common understanding because that's the path that's going to lead us towards a better place over time. And, and, and what does that long-term place look like when you look at 50 or 100 years? Well, I'm not smart enough to answer that. But I do know that the only way it gets better is if folks get their head around common understanding and collaboration to a larger degree. 
with that in mind, Rob, and all those ideas floating around in terms of making sure that we're collaborating, in terms of engaging with stakeholders, in terms of making sure that we take into account all the possible ideas and points of views that are available and really adapting and adopting cognitive diversity and making sure we're including the voices that may not be listened to, I think we can create something, like you said, is some sort of utopia. And I'd like to thank you so much for coming on and having this conversation. I love the conversation and I'm hoping our viewers did as well. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it, really appreciate it. And um, look forward to talking to you again at some point. Thank you.